8 to 14. And in my Bible, it's entitled, Love, for the Day is Near. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, um, we're going to continue looking at Romans. So we looked at Romans 12 a couple of weeks ago on our, um, the, to coincide with our um, AGM and just remember why, uh, what, our, what our mission, what our vision, what those kind of core values we have as a church are. And Romans 12 uh, did a great service to us to, to remind us of that from God's Word. And then Joe continued on in Romans 13 for us last week. Um, picking up where we finished the week before. And so we've still got a little bit of Romans 13 to look at. And um, Joe was going to preach this morning, but he had a bit too much on to get prepared. And I actually had, have given a sermon on this in our church 11 years ago. I went through the podcast and found it. I didn't know that I had. Um, so I, I thought about it a little bit before, but I don't know whether you're, you might remember that. 11 years ago, if you were around, but I figured that was a long enough gap that we could go on with the same thing, and um, I still had to work pretty hard, because I don't know, uh, I was only 22 then, so who knows what was going on in my head, but um, God's Word hasn't changed. Actually, the NIV translation has changed since then, <laughs> but um, oh, now I feel old. Let, let's pray, and we'll, we'll get into it. Our loving Father, we give you great thanks for are your word that it speaks to us, that it's as relevant today as it was 11 years ago and as it was when you first spoke it, uh, Lord, that your word is the word of life, uh, Lord. Like Jesus challenged the disciples if they were going to leave him and they wisely recognized that they had nowhere else to go uh, but from him because he possessed those words of life. So too, uh, bring it to our heart. That, that realisation that what we're about to look at is, is precious and it, and it feeds us and it spurs us on. So Lord, we ask that your word would speak to us in that way this morning. Lord, that your spirit would uh, be revealing things or things that I don't even say. Lord, in each of our hearts, Lord, that you might help us to, to know how this, how this word will, will um, guide us in continuing to follow you and bring that conviction in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how do you work out if a situation is urgent? There's a lot of 
wisdom needs to go on here because some things press on us like they're the most urgent thing and really we know that they can wait. How do you decipher if that demand that you're getting at work really needs to happen right at that moment? Sometimes it can wait. How do you work out as a parent when that 18th, 18th or 19th mom comes down, you know, from the bedroom or somewhere? How do you work out if that's the urgent one that, you know, they have actually found a snake in their cupboard or something like that? How do you work out whether something is urgent? See, when something is urgent, you've got to get onto it straight away. You can't just wait around and see what might happen. I'm really hopeless in urgent situations. I have a tendency to freeze up. Um, I don't know whether I panic or whether I just have a bit of loose wiring and I kind of like, you know, take a while to meet my, uh, what I'm seeing with what, and what I'm hearing with what I'm actually doing. Last year we were at the swimming pool and Brian was on um, duty as the lifeguard and me and him were chatting about goodness knows what. I was probably trying to explain cricket or another Australian sport to him. And um, Luna, our one-year-old daughter, was in the kids' pool and just went backwards and went fully under and she didn't know how to stand herself up yet. And I was just kind of like... Like that was my response. I froze up, and luckily Tara could decipher what I was saying and ran to um, Luna, and she's forgiven me for my hopelessness. But how do we work out if something is urgent? Now, I think, though, for all the ways that we do tend to worry about the future or think about the things that are happening in our world... There's there's an element of our life, the way that Australians live their life, that gets us pretty distracted from what is urgent, from treating anything that's too urgent. You know, we kind of have that attitude, just sit back, relax, it'll work itself out, no worries. There's those other expressions of it, don't worry, uh, chill out, or the one from England in the Second World War that's kind of plastered on everything now, keep calm and carry on, just whatever, it'll be okay. Now, obviously, there's some times where that's the best attitude. And there's even encouragement from the Bible that there's times in our life where we are best to wait on God and to not uh, over-worry or be anxious about what's going on around us. There's certain situations where the wisest thing to do is to try to remain calm and remind ourselves that God is in control. That's not what we're reading today. What we're reading today is talking about something that is so urgent that it can never wait. In fact, it comes back to the verses that begin this section. So Romans has 11 chapters of really beautifully spelling out the detail of what God has done for you in Jesus. And then in chapter 12, as Paul's writing this letter, he begins with this phrase, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Did you hear that word? I urge you. That's where the word urgent has its origins, isn't it? There's an urge, there's a necessity to do something about God's mercy. If you've seen the mercy of God in your own life, there should be no delay in offering yourself your whole life over to those things that are spoken about there, the transformation 
of your life, of the way that you see things, of the way that, of the, the renewal of your mind. This is what it is to be a worshipper of Jesus. This is what it is to truly worship God. In the, there's one sense in which it's our religion, not religion in, in that ritualistic way, but our religion of offering our whole life given to the service of, of the body, of the church, of the gospel, and of the society in which we live. This is what we're urged to do in view of God's mercy. And that's actually the theme that Paul's still working with when we get to these verses from verse 8 to 14 of chapter 13. He says, love. His urge is to love. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's already spoken about serving the body. He's spoken about doing good in the community. He's spoken about submitting to authority. And Paul is really, at this point, explaining how love is the way to to sum all this up, to wrap all this up. Love, we will see, has this way of binding all these things together. Now, you might recall also that Romans is addressing a division that was happening in the church. In chapter 14, he'll really unpack that. But the Jewish Christians have returned to the church in Rome after a period of of persecution and exile, and they're trying to fit back in. And all these cracks have opened up in how the church is getting along. The need for love for one another is paramount to that situation. For this church to move forward, it's going to take the love of the gospel to reshape how they love and relate so that they can unite. So that's some context for what we're looking at today. So now we're going to dive into those verses, and there's nothing on the screen this week, but you do have the passage printed out in front of you if you don't have your own Bible with you. So look at those verses with me. We're dealing with this part of Paul's teaching as how we respond to Jesus with our whole life. And really, his first thing to say is to love. Paul's echoing Jesus. He says, this is the greatest commandment, to love. All those other commandments that he kind of spells out there, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't covet. You might recognize them as some of the Ten Commandments from Exodus. Well, Paul says they are all covered if we love one another. And in fact, if you know about the Ten Commandments, you'll remember that the Ten Commandments were also given at a time where God had already rescued his people. They were given in view of God's mercy, shown to the Israelites as they're led out of Egypt. He'd shown them great grace and mercy and deliverance. And this is the thing we always need to remember. This will sort our thinking out from when we, when we get tempted to think that we're somehow saved by our own works. See, the pattern of obedience in the Christian life is always in response to the grace shown us. It's never a way to earn it. It's always our response. But likewise, it must be our response. We respond in faith and then it comes forth in obedience. It's our expression of trusting that we have a good God. Now notice this. The Ten Commandments, think about the ones that are there and the others that you know, and a lot of the Old Testament commandments, they're actually written in the negative. Do not do this. Thou shalt not. You shall not. 
prior to Jesus pouring out his spirit, revealing God's grace and mercy in its fullness, well, there wasn't the same kind of freedom to be obedient to those commandments. Prior to Jesus' very own spirit coming into our hearts, having received Jesus by faith, there was no way that the Israelites could ever be obedient to that. They didn't. They ended up exiles. They ended up worshipping other gods. It was, it was atrocious. It, there's a part of Romans where Paul explains this phenomenon. He says that the law just pretty much highlights the sinfulness of our own hearts, the darkness of our own hearts. But the great news of Jesus and of a new life as a Christian is we are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. We are becoming like him as we go on living for him. The negative expression of the command shows that our darkened hearts are kind of captive to sin, but what the law was powerless to do, Jesus did for us. As we've received Jesus as our saviour and as our substitute, we remember that Jesus has been obedient to these commands on our behalf. And so Paul writes this with this new freedom in the Christian life to love, love one another, love your neighbour as yourself. Love as Jesus has first loved you. Love out of that realisation that Jesus has loved every person that you will interact with. Love does no harm. As people who have accepted Jesus, God wants us to be loving. That's the urgent thing that he's talking about here. Now, love can be that funny word and it gets misused and it's been diluted. People love chocolate, don't they? Sometimes we think love is all about that, oh, um, you know, butterfly in your tummy feeling, the airy fairiness of falling in love. But this isn't the love that we have for fishing or football. This love that God loves is an action by which we act in other people's interests, regardless of how we feel about them. That's the love that Jesus showed you. What would have God felt in our sinfulness? Rejection? Betrayal? But how did God act? His action was in our best interest. That w was what love was for Jesus, coming among the people, dying in our place, the death that we deserved, that he never deserved. Screaming from the cross in prayer, Father, forgive them, even to the people that were literally putting him on the cross. Jesus on the cross is this love. So what is being said to us today, to you and to me, is that we should love like Jesus loves. We need to love our neighbour as ourselves. Because Jesus loves us, we should love others also. But as if we haven't heard that before. We know that. We've been taught that all through our Christian life. We're not saying anything new. Have you ever seen those TV shows on like Seven Mate where they put all the really cheaply made American TV shows? The one about the doomsday preppers? 
Yeah, yeah, okay, yep. You're into trashy TV if you're nodding, that's all right. Now, these are the people, mainly Americans, who build bunkers in their backyard with thick concrete walls and stock their rooms up with cans of baked bean and spiced ham, spam, good stuff. I've never eaten it, actually. Um, Joe reckons he knows people like this, so it's a real thing, Joe. Yep, is it like the TV portrays it? Pretty much, okay. Um, And it seems kind of funny, and I'm sure the TV shows play it up and it's half scripted and all that kind of thing, and we mindlessly sit there and laugh at it. And these people are kind of shown to be kind of quirky, but I want you to admire something about these people. Only a little thing, not don't, don't be like them, but admire this thing about them. It's the urgency with which they live. In a similar way, not the same way, in a similar way, us who follow Jesus, Paul is describing urgent times. Have a look at verse 11 and 12 with me again. And do this, that is, love your neighbour as yourself, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the day is almost here. Wake up from your slumber, Paul says. Salvation is getting closer with each day. Every day lived and breathed is a day closer to the ultimate goal, the ultimate thing that God has been doing from all eternity, to bring a people for himself together, living under the King Jesus. The night is nearly over, he says. The day is almost here. It's such a clear and simple image for us. In 2006 and 2007, 13 years ago, gee, this is a long long time back. I worked out at the 24-hour shop in Woodburn, the Poison Palace or whatever they call it. And no, it was, it was clean. It was fine. Um, but I got put on the nighttime shift, the graveyard shift for about three months. And I would start at 10 p.m. at night and I'd knock off at 7 a.m. in the morning there all by myself. My goodness, you saw some weird things. But During the period of September and October, we've just kind of gone through the time change last night. It's good that everyone showed up. It's normally the other time, the other time of year that everyone's like, oh, I forgot to go to church today. But during September and October, what I was amazed by staying up all through the night was that at about a quarter to four in the morning, that early, you saw the first rays of sunlight. It's incredibly early. I don't know, maybe some of you get up that early anyway. But to me, it blew my mind. But the thing about it was that when I saw that sunlight, it was a huge motivation because I knew, oh, finally, the morning's coming here and I'm going to get on with what I had to do so that I could get home and then go to bed. Paul's kind of trying to paint that picture here of the world that we live in, of the times that we live in. And he's saying to to us, to to the... Romans here and to us now, he's saying, wake up from being sleepy Christians to being wide awake Christians. Being ready for the final day where we meet Jesus face to face, where our salvation takes its its full comes in its fullness. We need to wake up from being sleepy Christians to realizing that now is the time to live for Jesus Christians. 
Now, for the Roman church, their sleepiness might have been the issues they had with one another. They're kind of like getting on their hobby horse about getting their point of view across. And you'll see that in chapter 14 if you read through it. Their divisions over those kind of Jewish traditions. But for us, we can be sleepy in a myriad of ways. I've really appreciated John's preaching, as I'm sure many of you have, as someone who's kind of one of us, an Aussie, but has been outside of our culture long enough to talk to us about stuff that he can see that we're sleepy to, point some stuff out to us. Our sleepiness might be a preoccupation that Aussies seem to have with their own comfort to craft ourselves the homes and the holidays and the bank balances that let us have that kind of easy-paced and comfortable life. Our sleepiness might be the desire to win small battles, to win the culture war that's going on between the Christian view and, and other views that are out there, forgetting that on the horizon is a king who is resurrect, a resurrected saviour, who will judge with fairness and the wisdom that we don't possess, all the arguments that are happening at, the, at this time. Now, at times for me, my sleepiness has been both those things, those examples that I've just shared. And you can fill in the blank there what it is for you. More recently, my sleepiness has been a struggle to remain motivated in my work. Um, it's probably, I think, mainly missing having Paul here to talk through stuff um, with be motivated and, and work alongside. It's a big adjustment trying to, to get over that. Paul and I used to meet most Mondays and have lunch and we'd often spend considerable amount of time really chewing through where we're at as a church and, and how to invest time into people who we we're going to see reached and, and encouraged. And I've found it hard to adjust uh, and part of that is being less motivated to try new things, less confident more guarded with my time. And that's a sleepiness that I can see that I need to wake up from. Now, just think, if I'm going to raise all these ideas, have I actually moved away from what Paul was talking about in, in this chapter here? In verses 8 to 10? Because his command was to love one another. But can we really apply this idea of living urgently in all areas of our life in this way? Well, think about this. All these commands are flowing out of a life given over to Jesus that comes in view of God's mercy to be changed and shaped by him. Back in chapter 12, verses 3 to 8, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, we saw that we've been gifted as believers to serve the body. The reason for love in verses 8 to 10 is to be unified as a body unified in love so make that connection with me loving each other means using your gift to serve each other think about this season of change we're in as a church now the leadership of the church like matt kind of shared before is less centralized in in one person in a, in a senior pastor or whatever title you want to work with and it's being more shared out what's going to happen and what will happen is that we'll have different ideas, differing opinions as to what should be happening. And so even when cracks appear, the way to close them up is to love each other more, be more committed to the love of another. See, it's very easy 
to stop loving someone that you disagree with. But it's very easy to stop disagreeing with someone that you love, someone that you're committed to loving. So what about you? In which way are you asleep? In any of these specific ways or in other ways that I haven't even touched on? Do you ever get up of a morning and think it's just too hard to take Jesus too seriously today? Is that an occasional thing or maybe you're in a cycle of that? God's word says to us that we need to wake up from that kind of slumber if that's where we're at. I hate being woken up. It's happening more and more as our kids get older. And I know that's weird. Normally babies wake you up. But in my case, I'm such a hopeless sleeper that our babies have woken Tara up. And now they're getting a little bit older. They tend to wake me up a bit more. Um, They're good at kicking and pushing and making sure they wake me up. I'm hopeless when I sleep because I go into like this really deep sleep really quickly. Just try watching a movie with me when I'm tired and you won't hear any of it because I'll snore the whole way through. But God's word, I don't think, is quite, you know, a toddler ramming into our ribs and saying, wake up. Because back in chapter 12, Paul was basing all this on us having a grand view of God's mercy. And so it's never just a shout to wake up. It's It's a directive to look back at Jesus to look at what he has done for you. He says, have that grand view of God's mercy. See, if we constantly live in view of that, it'll strip away what our minds are on. It will wake us up from that slumber. It will let us see the love Jesus has for us and others, and it will bring out that same love for others. If you struggle to love someone, just remember how much God loves them how God sent his son to the cross for them as much as for you. The verse goes on, doesn't it? The day is almost here. And so he says, put on the armor of light. And that actually gives us this image of the need to fight off the darkness, fighting off that kind of apathy or that selfishness or whatever might creep in. And again, this is never to earn our salvation, but it's, it's because we have the hope. Because we have this good hope in Jesus. Jesus has promised that he will return again and he will restore all things. That's the day that is almost here. And it's kind of that live each day as though it's your last kind of idea. But it's without the way that we normally do that in our, in our Aussie culture. It's not driving us towards a selfish kind of living. It's driving us towards that ultimate reality. So we look at these last couple of verses, 13 and 14. And this is where he really puts meat on it. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness. These are really helpful in painting a picture of what that love looks like. And Paul starts by saying about behaving decently in the daytime. Now he doesn't say when it's night time, go down and you know, party all you like. He's using a metaphor still. The idea of the daytime is continuing the image of being in the light, of living in these urgent times. And what are we to do in the daytime? Well, he says, behave decently. So our attitude of love can be seen in the way that we behave. 
The first thing that he lists there that I just read out is carousing. Now, carousing is a, a funny word. It tends to mean um, kind of like a wild party or a lot of people uh, drinking together. The old NIV translation and the ESV translation actually uses a, the word orgy. Don't be caught in orgies. Now, the most contemporary meaning of this word is actually a little bit different from its original meaning. See, imagine you're in an ancient Greece and the Olympics are on and someone's just won the sprint and is leaving and going home. What would happen was a huge crowd would surround that person and celebrate with him as he comes home. And that was what this word actually meant. This is what an orgy was in that sense. But because of the Greek culture, it took on a really negative meaning when it would be filled in with drunkenness and sexuality. And all of these kind of things are informing what this word means. So with all these negative meanings in mind, Paul says to steer clear of that kind of culture. And that culture, you don't have to scratch very far in our society to find it. He says the same thing for drunkenness there. What Paul is saying is behaving decently is making a conscious and loving decision just to not be a part of that. And that might throw up some questions for us. You might be thinking, well, what about those people? I love those people. I, 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 you know, these are my friends, my family, the people that I play sport with. Can I be around people like this? Can I be there to try to help them out? reach out to them? What if I'm there but don't take part in what is going on? They're all valid questions. Jesus himself, in stories that we read in the Gospels, was at parties maybe like this. What should we do? That's a question of, of wisdom again, I think. Something for you to answer and pray about. But I, I, I want to encourage us not to be naive. Don't think that we won't get caught up in that kind of sinfulness, if we are there as a you know in a missionary way, in a in a way of reaching out, we're called to to be on guard here to always behave decently. I've known people, and I'm sure you have too, who have come from that kind of drug and alcohol and party scene, and they've accepted Jesus, and with the great intention of helping their old friends out, who are still caught in that deadly kind of lifestyle have just themselves been pulled right back into it. So we need not be naive. If your old life, as before you became a Christian, was filled with drunkenness, if it was filled with that kind of like loose living, then be wise in how you actually go on living now. But that's not where Paul stops. His list goes on. He talks about sexual immorality, which is all sexual activity outside of marriage. He talks about debauchery, which is a word that means publicly and without shame acting immorally. Dissension, which is being greedy for power and being selfish. And then jealousy and envy. These characteristics and behaviours, Paul simply says, are not behaving decently. And they're not loving. And they're not ways to respond thankfully to Jesus. While our sin is forgiven, we don't have a license to go on sinning. If you think through that list in light of the command to love, it's clear where the connection is. Behaving in any of those ways is not loving to anyone else. 
It will use others rather than love them. Sexual immorality is using another person for sexual gratification. It will distort your view of others. It won't be seeing them as someone loved by God. And it will kill our self-control that helps us to live in a loving way. As Christian people who want to say thank you to Jesus for the grace he has shown you, don't let these things be part of your life. Out of love for one another, put aside these deeds of darkness. So Paul in verse 14 then gives us the awesome alternative. He says, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's saying let his character be your character. Let that be formed in you as you read the word, as you live in Christian community, as you go on praying and and letting his spirit transform you. Keep coming back in your Bible reading to the Gospels where you will see clearly who Jesus was. Instead of us being sucked into the desires of our sinful nature, the temptation of indecent behaviour and the selfishness in us, Paul says we can put on Jesus, we can clothe him ourselves with him he says the night is nearly over you can't put this off the day is almost here and in saying that he's telling us that we won't have to put up with our imperfections for much longer with our temptations for much longer that is a great hope often when we think about the hope of heaven we can couch it just in terms of our health like we'll talk about oh i won't have that this bad back in heaven will i or I won't have that struggle with cancer in heaven. Or I won't watch the people I love suffer in heaven. And that's true and that's fine. But listen to what Paul's saying here. This passage takes us to some stuff that is much more significant. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. I'm not going to have to put up with the greediness that I battle in my heart for much longer. It too with the night will pass. I don't have to battle that lustfulness much longer because Jesus is going to return. My tendency to stretch the truth, my desire for power, my need for control, my impatience with my kids or my mom or my husband or whoever, whatever that desire of the flesh we desire to gratify, it's going to disappear with the night. Isn't that a... A hopeful picture? Doesn't that give you confidence? Doesn't that give you hope that the battle that you face, whatever sin you battle with, will pass? This is the reality of knowing Jesus. His salvation is so great that he has forgiven you from the deeds of darkness and he is bringing you toward his kingdom of light. Verse 12 says, The night is nearly over. And that day is almost here. So let us, let us, Evans Head Presbyterian Church, put aside the deeds of darkness and be people that are living with that armour of light. This is our future reality and so it's the way that we should live now. Seeking to be like Jesus now because that day is almost certainly here. And we do this in the reliance on the Holy Spirit, Jesus' own spirit inside of us to work that in us, who changes us to be urgent about loving in all these ways. So let's pray. Let's ask for God's spirit to work in that way in our lives now. Our loving Father, we do thank you for 
the richness of your word, Lord, the way that it speaks uh, so relevantly into the things that we struggle with, the battles that we face. Lord, we thank you for the great hope of the day that is spoken about in your word, Lord, in that chapter and, and throughout the Bible, Lord, where all things are brought under your control. Lord, where sin is put to death and where we live with the full freedom of relationship with you, unhindered by our own sinfulness. But Lord, as we live in this time now, Lord, by your spirit, imprint on our hearts and minds a grand view of, of your mercy, of what Jesus has truly done for us in dying in our place and freeing us to a new life where we can love one another. So Lord, help us to live with that armour of light. Lord, help us to have that love for one another. Lord, where we find ourselves not being loving, Lord, convert that feeling in our heart, Lord, and give us affection for one another. Lord, give us love and compassion for those that don't know you. Lord, give us wisdom to know how to navigate this world. But Lord, above all, help us to understand the urgency to be living for you, Lord, in every moment of every day. Lord, defeat in us those feelings where we will put it off or think about it later. Lord, help us to be living for you right now. In Jesus' name. Amen.